All right, if you would, let's take our Bibles and turn together to the book of Nehemiah. I'll probably call it Ezra at some point tonight. That's what I've been calling it all day, but I'll try to call it rightly Nehemiah in the time that we have together. The book of Nehemiah, although it's a book in the Old Testament that I don't feel as though I have um, a level of, I don't have the same level of understanding or expertise in the book of Nehemiah that I feel I do in other areas, but it is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. It is uh, the story of what God might do through a group of people who put their nose to the grindstone and are willing to work to see the plan of God implemented, who are willing to labor long and to labor, labor hard to do what God has called them to do. Nehemiah is best known as that character in the Old Testament who, led by God, returns from the 70-year exile in Babylon to the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, and leads the people of Israel to build, uh, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and they do it. They rebuild the city walls in 52 days. Even if you had the kind of equipment that we have today, to reconstruct those city walls in 52 days would be a pretty impressive feat. But to do it with the rudimentary tools and equipment that they would have had in ancient Israel is a really, really phenomenal thing. And not only did they do it, they did it in the midst of some unrest in the camp and a great deal of trouble from outside. They were uh, opposed in the work that they set their hand to do, but they were able to see it through. And one of the best-known scenes in the book of Nehemiah, you have the masons who are laying stone with one hand, trowel in hand. And with the other hand, they have their hand on the handle of their sword, ready to defend themselves at the attack of an invading enemy. It really is a beautiful picture of determination and devotion to the work that God had called them to. We're going to look first at, at chapter 1 as Nehemiah receives a report of uh, the conditions back in Jerusalem. We talked last week as we looked at the book of Ezra about three returns. There are three waves of return from exile. There is the first wave of return led by Zerubbabel, who is the descendant of David. He's sent back there by the king as governor of Judah. His name, his lineage, being a descendant of David, makes Zerubbabel a, 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 a hopeful character. He is, in some ways, the hope of Israel as they repopulate the land. There is still the potential that Israel would be led by a king in the line of David, the kind of king that they longed for and looked for for this period of, of exile. And then there's the second wave of return from exile led by Ezra, the, the scribe. And Ezra's uh, skill was the law of God. We re remember last week we talked about the fact that Ezra committed himself to reading God's word, to studying God's word, to teaching God's word, and to obeying God's word. And Ezra is an important character in the book of Nehemiah as well. And then there's a third return, a third wave of return from exile led by the man for whom this book is named Nehemiah. Um, you might be interested to know that in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. 
it's just one book, Ezra, Nehemiah, not separated into two. But this seems to be a neat break and in English translations for as long as there have been English translations, as best I know, the book has been divided into the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. In chapters 1 and 2, there's uh, the report of the conditions back in the city of Jerusalem, and then Nehemiah, um, a request of the king, permission to return, and to be about the work of restoring the city, and is granted uh, permission by the king to do so. Reconstruction begins in chapter 3, chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Uh, detail for us the reconstruction of those walls and some of the hardships experienced along the way. In chapters 8 through 12, there is dealing with the, the business of repopulating the city. Once the walls have been constructed, the city is now fortified again, and it's safe to return to the city of Jerusalem. And so the people of Israel begin to settle back in, and then the book closes with some final reforms. But as I said a moment ago, we'll begin here in chapter 1 and verse number 1. The Bible says here, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakalah, during the month of Kislev, or Chislev, that'd be November, December, in the 20th year when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. So the situation is this. Nehemiah is still in Babylon. He's in the city of Susa. If you're familiar with the book of, e of Esther, you, you'll remember the city of Susa is where the book of Esther is set. It was the winter residence for the king of Babylon, Xerxes, in the book of Esther. It was in the city of Susa that Daniel received a certain vision. There's Nehemiah in Babylon in the city of Susa, and there's a back and forth. There is uh, a, 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 some trade that's, being, uh, that's happening, a, a market that exists between Babylon and the city of Jerusalem, given that some of the Israelites have returned. And Nehemiah, in what may be a chance encounter here, asks of his brother Hanani what the conditions are back in the city of Jerusalem. And Hananiah explains that it's, uh, it's an embarrassing, even disgraceful situation, that the walls of the city lie in ruin and the city gates have been burned. Now, that may seem insignificant to us. We don't think about walls and gates as being critical to the life of a city. But in the ancient Near East, when you were vulnerable to enemy attacks at most any time, it was critically important if you were to survive within a city that you had a well-fortified city with walls and with gates. So Nehemiah hears the report of the dire conditions back in the city of Jerusalem and the distress and disgrace under which his brothers are living. In verse 4, the Bible says, Nehemiah speaking, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And here's what I said. One of the interesting features before we begin to read Nehemiah's prayer of the book of Nehemiah is, is the prayerfulness, the persistence in prayer, and the pattern of prayer that Nehemiah establishes. And, and, and I remember, this is a book about a man who undertook an incredible construction project and brought it to completion in 52 days. 52 days. It's not a coincidence that a man who is known for efficiency is deeply committed to prayer. See, in your personal life, there is the, the, the thinking sometimes, the devil's deception is that you don't have time to pray. 
that because of the busyness of your schedule, you don't have time to devote a segment of your day to spending time in fellowship with God. But Nehemiah helps us to understand that if we'll enjoy any efficiency whatsoever, it won't be the product of our good time management skills. It'll be about efficiency granted by the favor of God, the fruit, the product, the result of our having a healthy prayer life with God. Nehemiah begins to pray in verse 5. He says, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him, and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we've committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man. Now he's praying for boldness to go before the king. But the content of Nehemiah's prayer is, is beautiful. He acknowledges that God is the God who answers prayer, that the source of his power, the source of his strength is, is, is not his own. It's, it's God's. Ultimately, our ability to carry forth the plan that God has established for us to fulfill the calling that God has placed on our life is not a power provided by natural means. It is a supernatural and spiritual power. Here's another element of the book of Nehemiah that I so appreciate. Nehemiah is always careful to thank God for granting them good success in their labors. And he's thanking them in the context of their straining and striving to do what he's called them to do. They're, they're, they're working with a trial with one hand, and they're fighting off an enemy with the other hand, sword in hand. And yet they acknowledge that it's God who has provided them fruitfulness in their endeavors. We think about that sometimes in a way that seems contradictory. We think sometimes that our efforts are somehow contradictory to grace. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to believing that somehow God is indebted to you because of your effort, but grace has not and never will be opposed to our effort. It is the activity of God's grace in us that enables us to labor for the advancement of his kingdom. I tried over the past couple of weeks and will attempt again on Sunday morning to, to press the idea of grace as, an, as an, an active thing in our life, not this passive thing that sort of sits there that overlooks our sin or it's just lying dormant, but, but the grace of God is active in our life. It empowers us to, to do what God's called us to do. It empowers us to reach heights of obedience that were beyond our capacity apart from the grace of God. 
Nehemiah works and he works, he labors and he strives, all the while thanking God for the fruit of his labor. He acknowledges the God who answers his prayers. He confesses his sin and the sins of his fathers, the sins of his people. He says, I confess the sins we've committed against you, both I and my father's house, we have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. On the front end of your prayer time ought to be an opportunity for saying, God, I am a sinful person in need of grace and mercy. I need to be washed in the blood of Jesus and made clean and made right and made righteous. Before he gets to asking God for anything, he begins with his most urgent need that God would forgive him of his sin. Having confessed his sin, he makes his petition. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the request of your servant and your servants, the people of Israel. God, help us. Give us good success in our efforts at resettling the city of Jerusalem. His, efforts, his, his prayer is informed by the word of God. He's, he's, he's not praying without a basis. He prays often in the book of Nehemiah on the basis of God's promise. We've seen this some in Moses in the book of Exodus on Sunday morning. Moses prays and asks God that he would answer according to the promise that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God is good to keep his promise. He's faithful to his word. Whether that word was issued a thousand years ago or five thousand years ago, God is faithful to keep his word. A good, if you struggle in your prayer life, this has been said recently, but if you struggle in your prayer life, a good way to pray and to stay on task in your prayer life is to pray through the Scripture. Take any passage of Scripture and read until you're prompted to pray about a certain issue in your life and then pray until you've exhausted that concern and then go back to reading the text again and pray until you're prompted to pray about another issue in your life and pray until you've exhausted that concern. In our attention deficit disorder generation, we need certain aids in helping us to stay on task when it comes to prayer and the study of God's Word. There's no better way to pray than to pray the Word of God. Nehemiah is praying in a way that is informed by what he knows of God's Word. He's certainly sincere in what he asks of God. And his sincerity is marked by his willingness to go as God answers the prayer. Understand that here in chapter 1, Nehemiah says, God, we pray that you would give us good success in resettling the city of Jerusalem. You realize God answered that prayer, right? And one of God's means of answering that prayer was the calling of Nehemiah to lead a third wave of exiles back into the city. Often, I think, we're willing to take certain prayer needs to the Lord. We're just not willing to be a part of God's answering that prayer. The sincerity of Nehemiah is best expressed by his faithfulness in answering the call of God on his life. If you're burdened to pray about a certain scenario, there is a strong likelihood that God is calling you to be a part of the solution to the issue that's been brought to your, brought to your attention. Certainly, Nehemiah is willing to go and be a part of God's answering this prayer. He's, he's proactive He's even aggressive in answering the call of God. Nehemiah's always doing something. He goes to the king in chapter 2. He goes 
to the work in chapter 3. He goes to the people and he requests assistance that they come along with him. He's delegating things. He's, he's building a team of people that can go back and join with the work of resettling and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. I think a part of what appeals to me, to me about the person of Nehemiah is his work ethic. He works hard. And I know in, in, among doers, and there's some of you who'll take this and, you'll, and you'll, you'll mistreat this principle, but having a good work ethic, being able or willing to work long and hard is a biblical thing. It's not coincidental that as we drift as a society away from Christian principles, that we're drifting away from a good capacity for hard work. Nehemiah is willing to work. Now, some of you have made an idol of your career, and you need to repent of that and put things back into perspective. But, but there are some of you who perhaps need to hear a word of encouragement to labor hard at, at what you've been assigned to do. This is one of a number of areas where my generation and perhaps a generation before and after could stand to learn from elder generations. Um, I think it's one of the benefits of growing up in a grandpa's home who just took some sadistic pleasure in watching me work when things didn't even need to be done. He just liked to see me, me work. When my, when my granddaddy died, there were five stacks of rough sawn lumber on the, on the back of our place that I, I cut the trees down and I ran the portable mill and I stacked them. And I had stacked each of those stacks no less than three times, some of them more than that, for no other reason in my estimation than because he wanted to see me out in the yard working on something. Now, I hated it. I did not enjoy it. But I think it's one of the greatest gifts that, that he gave me. And I still hope that when my time on earth is done, that they'll be able to say, if they can't say anything else, well, he didn't get outworked a whole lot. There's value in that. That's a Christian principle that we're willing to put our hand to the plow and press hard. And if we'd be willing to do that in our earthly work, how much more should we be willing to do that when it comes to the advancement of God's kingdom? We're almost, we're almost reluctant to think about stretching people or or uh, uh, overloading people when it comes to, to the work of ministry, kingdom advancement. But if there's any area of our life where we ought to be willing to be stretched, to really sweat, to really need to press, it ought to be in the business of kingdom advancement. If you're a slacker, this is just an encouragement to put hand to the plow and to press hard that the kingdom of Jesus would be greatly advanced through your life. Nehemiah does that quite beautifully. Now, there's an approach uh, on the part of Nehemiah that you can see. If you just sit down and read through the book of Nehemiah, it won't take you long. I think you can probably read through Nehemiah in about 30 minutes. Um, if you sit down and read through, here's what you'll see. Each time a difficulty comes before Nehemiah, he prays. He prays, and then he goes to work. And then at the end of the work, once he's been granted success, he then pauses to thank God for giving him success in the work. 
the gratitude that Nehemiah exhibits along the way in this 52-day building process and even beyond that is really a, a remarkable thing. The inclination of man is, when we have a good work ethic, is to finish the day and look back at what we've accomplished and to beat our chest and to feel proud as though we, we have been the ultimate cause for what we see before us. Nehemiah was resistant to that kind of pride. He didn't seem to have the kind of ego that was inclined that way. He would stop and give praise and thanks to God for the way that he had blessed his efforts on that particular day or within that particular scenario. So in chapters 2 through 6, if you turn over to chapter 2 and verse number 11, Nehemiah plans the work and he works the plan. And as he begins to assemble a, a team, he begins to gather a, a group of people together, he begins to make a plan to think about what needs to happen in order to see this restoration project through. In verse 11, the Bible says, after I arrived in Jerusalem, I'd been there three days. I got up at night, took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's well and the dung gate, and I inspect, inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through, so I went up at night by way of the valley and inspected the wall. Heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, for I'd not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned down. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we'll no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. And they said, Let's start rebuilding. And they were encouraged to do this good work. Now, he makes reference to what the king had said. The king essentially gave him permission to go back. Nehemiah was cupbearer in the king's court. The king noticed his sad countenance and inquired about his sadness. He uh, thought that perhaps Nehemiah was depressed, but he explained, no, my sadness is the result of Jerusalem lying in ruins. And the king commissioned Nehemiah to go back. Here he has inspected the walls. He's apparently come up with a plan for their reconstruction, and he's rallied the people together. They begin about the business of rebuilding the wall. It's an impressive work even from the very beginning. But as is often the case, anytime we set out to do the work that God calls us to do, there's opposition. The opposition shows up in chapter 4 in verse number 1. Here the Bible says, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. This is part of that Samaritan group that we talked about last week in our study of Ezra. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up on what they're building, he would break down their stone wall. Nehemiah said in verse 4, Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Don't cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they've provoked the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. 
when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashadites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. And notice the accusation that their opponents make back in verses 2, or verse 2. What are they doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Is this a work that they can really pull off? Will they offer sacrifices? It's not clear to me whether this is asking if they intend to make sacrifices within the city, something they clearly intended to do, meaning sacrifices within the sacrificial system, or if this is a question about their willingness to make sacrifices to see the project through. It feels like, it reads like, they're asking, are they willing to make the sacrifices necessary to see this project brought to completion? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from mounds of rubble? Can anything good come of what remains of these walls? They had been burned. They had been broken. They were lying in a heap. In some cases, they would need to be removed. That new stone could replace the old stone if the wall was to stand, if it was to serve as fortification for the city itself. These same kinds of questions could be asked of any of us as we set our hand to the task of doing what God has called us to do. Is this a work that we can do what can we really do what God has called us to do? Are we willing to make the sacrifices necessary to see through the project that God has assigned to us? Can it ever be finished? Is this even a reasonable thing that we've undertaken to do? Sometimes ministry can feel that way. Not the building of walls, but the work of kingdom building can feel a bit overwhelming. You begin to look around at the untold millions of people who have never heard the name of Jesus. Even in our own county, a quarter million people, many of which have never heard the name of Jesus and most of which don't have a saving relationship with Jesus. Or the one million people in the Memphis metro, many of which who don't have a saving relationship with Jesus. It's overwhelming. It really is overwhelming. And the answer to the questions that are raised by the opposition of Israel is, no, they can't see this project through in their own strength. No, no, they can't bring this to completion in their own power. But Nehemiah continually enjoys the favor of God in this project and in his life, as do the people of Israel. And, and even as they're casting these accusations and charges against them, their success in the project. Verse 6 says, So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had the will to keep working. In spite of the opposition, in spite of the accusation, in spite of questioning their ability to see this project through, the people stayed at the task. The people continued to work. The people continued to labor hard. Sometimes kingdom work is hard. Sometimes kingdom work requires more of us and we may feel we have the time or the energy to give, but it's always a worthwhile work. The people had a mind to work and God was bringing about success in their efforts and so much so that the wall was joined together. There were gaps in the wall and they now brought the wall together. The wall was completely joined around the city of Jerusalem and it was not only joined, but it was joined up to, up to half its height. They were halfway through the project that God had called them to. But their success just brought further opposition. Verse 8 says, They plotted together to come and fight against the city of Jerusalem and to throw it into confusion. And so in verse 9 of chapter 4, Nehemiah does what he always does. The Bible says, So we pray to our God 
stationed a guard because of them day and night. In Judah it was said the strength of the laborer fails since there is so much rubble. We'll never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they won't know or see anything until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their sword, spears, and bows. And after I made an inspection, I stood and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your home. Now, not only was Nehemiah a good worker, he was an exceptional leader. There's some leadership principles at work in what Nehemiah does here in the book of Nehemiah that are really impressive. We're not going to look at all of the details of, of what he does, but one of the ingenious moves that Nehemiah does is that he, he identifies the neighborhoods of all of those involved in the construction of the wall, and he assigns them to that portion of the wall that's nearest their residence. Now, the reason that's wise is because you're going to be extra motivated to get the wall built in your neighborhood because it means your neighborhood won't be the first neighborhood that's invaded when the enemy comes. It also means that you're a lot more likely to put added effort in ensuring that your portion of the wall is a strong portion of the wall because you don't want to be the neighborhood with the junky part of the wall. You know what I mean? There's some, some very practical elements in Nehemiah's leadership here. He inspires the people. He exhorts them that they would remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for their countrymen, their sons and their daughters, their wives and their homes. In verse 15, the Bible says, When our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building and, and the trumpeter was beside me. Now, they, they were scattered out at work on the wall. The concern is, if they attack, we're all over the wall. So the trumpeter stayed with Nehemiah so that if he saw the enemy coming, he could sound the trumpet, and the people of Israel could assemble at that place in the wall where the enemy was advancing. Again, this is an incredible picture of people willing to make a sacrifice and work hard that this project would be carried through. Back in the days of the great Baptist preacher and theologian Charles Spurgeon, his sermons were disseminated in a small tract. Once he preached, there was someone who would transcribe his sermons on the Lord's Day, and then they would print them, and they would pass them out in the streets of London, and the name of that publication was The Sword and the Trowel. I always think of that when I read this particular passage. A picture of willingness to go to work that the kingdom would be advancing. The, the last sentence in verse uh, chapter 4 even tells us that each carried his weapon even when he was washing. They're, they're getting themselves cleaned up after a hard day's labor, and they're still on the guard and ready to be in defense of the city of Jerusalem. There's continued efforts at discouragement on the part of, of their opponents in chapter 6, but in, in chapter 5 we have a description of uh, some unrest within the camp. We won't have time to read through chapter 5, but essentially what's happening is 
the uh, upper tier, the upper crust of Jerusalem society are offering high interest loans to the lower rung of the social ladder in the city of Jerusalem and it's creating a, 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 something of a slave system within the city. Nehemiah petitions uh, the upper crust to forgive the debts, to return their properties, to redeem or to free the people so that the work can be continued about. There's sacrifice on the part of those as well as they do forego repayment of those loans and loans are no longer issued um, in the days of Nehemiah with interest. There's help. There's an opportunity for a loan at a certain level, but interest is reduced so that there's freedom on the part of all people to participate in the work, freedom from the debt that would have otherwise uh, constrain them from being a part of what God was doing among them. We need to spend a few minutes before our time is up in chapters 8 and 9, where Ezra is introduced to the Nehemiah narrative in a really powerful way. The city walls have been reconstructed in 52 short days. The early part of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the city, much like Ezra, and now the latter part of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the people. We're building up the walls in the early chapters of Nehemiah. Now there is a building up of the people themselves. In chapter 8, in fact in the last verse of chapter 7, the Bible says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and all those who could understand it. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. How do you like that? A public scripture reading that lasts, lasts about six hours. I'm going to say the crowd might get slim if we were to implement the Ezra Bible reading plan at Longview Point. In verse 5, the Bible says, Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted all the people and said, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their face to the ground. Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelta, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Pelion, who were Levites, explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. There's not a passage in the Bible that more influences my approach to pulpit ministry than Ezra 8 and the verses that we've just read. The, the reason that for all of my ministry I have invited congregants to stand out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word is, to, is a following after the pattern established by Ezra here in the text. It's just indicative of, of the special nature of reading God's Word together as a congregation. It sort of switches a flip in my mind. This is a holy moment. We are hearing from God. A moment that's holier, it's sacred, it's different even than the preaching of God's Word. This is not an exposition or a commentary on God's Word. This is God's Word. 
And so we stand to honor that moment when God affords us the privilege of hearing from him. Ezra stands, the people stand, God re, or Ezra reads aloud the words of God, and then these Levites, who are identified in verse 7, are at work in the crowd, explaining the law to the people as they stand in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. This is ancient Near Eastern expository preaching. This is reading the Bible and explaining the text. This is the responsibility of the preacher. This is the responsibility of the teacher. This is the responsibility of every believer within the context of teaching or training, giving instruction concerning the Bible. The reason that I preach expositionally is because it really doesn't matter what Brother Way thinks. What matters is what the Bible says. And it really doesn't matter what, what any of us think when it comes right down to it. I, I, I hear people begin theological conversations often with the phrase, I think or I believe. I don't know that there is anything more irrelevant than what we think or even on some level what we believe when it comes to what God has said. God has spoken, and that is the final word. We have again here an ancient Near Eastern expository preaching ministry where Ezra stands and he reads the text. And the Levites are at work among the people. In fact, we have an expositional preaching ministry with a small group format. The Levites are out in this congregation of Israelite people, instructing them, providing a translation and explanation of what has been read in the text. But what they're teaching is the truth of God's word, how to implement or make application of what they find in the book of the law of Moses. Brick and mortar built the city of God, but it was the Bible that built back the people of God in Jerusalem. And this is still the way the kingdom works. The people of God are best served by the word of God. Jesus said, man shall not live by, by, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is the pattern from this point forward in the book of Nehemiah. If you go over to chapter 8 and verse number 18, the Bible says there, Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day from the first day to the last. The Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day there was an assembly according to the ordinances. If you go down to chapter 9 and verse 3, the Bible says, While they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship of the Lord their God. They're spending half of their day in the study of God's word and the confession of their sins before God. Six hours reading the Bible and six hours making confession. Now, that's a lot of the day. There's a deep devotion here to the Word of God and the application of God's Word in their life. Now, although it's not a universal or all-time kind of thing that we would pattern our lives after, you're not going to take six hours of your day tomorrow and read the Bible and then six hours to make confession. Maybe you need to. Maybe there are seasons in your life when you really need to follow after this pattern. But you need every day, every day, every day to consume the Word of God, to read of God's Word, to meditate on God's Word, and to spend time in confession and prayer before God. 
the success that Nehemiah enjoyed in his ministry, in his leadership, what brought about efficiency and power to the leadership in the life of Nehemiah was his devotion to prayer and the Word of God. And I am convinced that there's a measure of power, of effectiveness, of ability, of efficiency that's available to us so often, a measure we do not avail ourselves of, but a measure that is available to us when we spend time with him in prayer and contemplation of his Word. God's Word is powerful. It is alive. It never fails. It never fades. His word does not return void. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but the word of God remains forever. And he's promised that he'll give us the desires of our heart as we come to him in prayer. The story of Nehemiah is not primarily the story of a 52-day construction project. It is a story about the power of prayer and the truthfulness of God's Word and how profitable it is for the people of God when we devote ourselves to the Word of God. May it be said of us that we are a people of prayer and devotion to God's Holy Word. Do you love the Word? Aren't you, aren't you glad that God has given us his word? Are you, are you still astonished by that? That God who is in heaven has spoken to us and we have record of God's plan, God's design, God's word and his will in the pages of the Holy Scripture. If that doesn't amaze you, it really ought to. Are you amazed at the notion that way down here on earth that we could bow our heads and hearts and that God who is enthroned in heaven who is beyond anything that we could think or imagine would hear our feeble voices and be pleased to condescend and to meet our measly needs. It really is a remarkable privilege that we have. I, I, I hope, I hope Oh, I hope that you'll give yourself to prayer and the study of God's Word. And it just might be, it just might be that God would do something that would make a 52-day construction project seem small in light of what he was willing to do.